Go ahead and if you will, go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the same text this week and next week, verses 1 through 4. A, uh, really? Um, no, I didn't mean, sorry, I didn't mean like really, uh, but, um, but, uh, <laughs> and while you're turning there, let me go ahead and go over what we talked about last week. We started last week in this text by, by really saying we're going to take a big bird's eye view from a 747 down uh, to see this play out throughout the theme of redemptive history. And so we're going to do that again this week, and then next week we'll get a little bit closer to the ground. Uh, but we started by saying how really our faith, a lot of the songs we sing and our, our faith in general is future-oriented. Right? We talked about that song, we will feast in the house of Zion, we will sing with our hearts restored, he has done great things, we will say together, we will feast and weep no more. So the, we saw that the big idea really is that God will bring us home, as we talked about in our kids' time. We looked in the story and saw that David, in the context, is a king without a kingdom. David's pronounced king all the way back in 1 Samuel, but king of what? king aware. He doesn't have a kingdom. The people recognize Saul as king. He's the one that they fear and that they revere. And so uh, Saul, in the eyes of many, are the king, but is the king. But, but the Lord has anointed David king. The Lord is with David. And though he is successful in all that he does, David really is a suffering servant figure. But what our text actually records for us is the return of the king. That David, now that Saul has passed, David is being pronounced king over Israel, and the Lord is telling him to come home. He tells him specifically to go to Hebron. And we would probably just look at that and read that and think, well, what does that mean? What's Hebron? Uh, until we peel back and see that this really is a significant uh, place throughout all the scriptures, particularly in the patriarch, because we see this motif of exile and return all throughout the scriptures. We see Abraham or Abram in Genesis chapter 12 has to go to Egypt. There's a famine in the land. He is exiled and then he returns. And when he returns, turns, he goes to Hebron. Jacob, when he is exiled from Esau and even Laban, he has to escape. He goes into Padan Aram and the Lord promises to bring him home and he comes to Hebron. We even saw that Israel, after they were exiled in Egypt and in slavery for 400 years, finally, when Joshua conquers the land, he promises the first plot of land to Caleb and Caleb takes Hebron. This is a significant place because it reminds us of something. There's a picture here. This isn't just coincidence that this continues to be a motif throughout all of Scripture. Because as we saw last week from the first lesson we learned, it reminds us, friends, that we are not home. We, you and I, as God's people right now, we are in exile. And yet God has promised to bring us home. We even looked last week at even the many deaths we've had as a church. We can really even view that through the lens that these brothers and sisters in Christ were in exile and God has fulfilled his promise to them to bring them home. In fact, God has placed eternity into the heart of every man. We even saw that unbelievers really, we're all like chance, shadow, and, and sassy. We want and long to go home. We can't medicate it away. It is a longing in every human heart to desire to go home. And for the Christian, we know that God has promised to bring us home. And so I want us to be reminded of that. And while we're uh, finally reminded of that, go ahead and stand with me as we read 2 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 4a again. And we'll finish 
two more lessons that we learned from all of that, this exile return motif. We'll jump into the final two lessons uh, this morning, hopefully very quickly. It says this, It happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, Where shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went there, and his two wives, also Anaham, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. And David brought up the men who were with him, every man with his household, so they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Father, we do thank you. Uh, for the tremendous promises of your word. Father, we hold dear to those each and every day. Would you help us to see that all theology is practical, that we're not here this morning just to hear a word and nod our heads and say, yes, that's great, and then go live our lives disconnected from how that word impacts our day-to-day lives. But Father, you have so given us the power of your spirit uh, that dwells within us, Father, that we can rightly apply these truths and we can actually be changed by what we hear from your word day in and day out. Thank you for that marvelous, marvelous gift. And Father, we we pray that we would heed and hear your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, as I said, this exile and motif, uh, or exile and return motif we see throughout all of Scripture really teaches us three lessons. One we covered last week. That we are not home, but God has promised to bring us home. And two more we need to start with this week. The first lesson I think we see from that, from this constant theme in Scripture is that, that we need, while we're in exile, while we're not home, we need the Lord to intervene. I don't want us to think that we can have this exile return sort of idea apart um, from the Lord. That the Lord takes no place in our return. Certainly he does. In fact, you think in all of these narratives of exile and return, it is the Lord who is with the exiled one and his household. It's the Lord who brings them home. As we think about these motifs, don't miss the fact, again, that the Bible is not about Abraham. The Bible is not about Isaac, it's not about Jacob, it's not about Israel, and it's not about David, and it's not about you, not in the way at least you might be tempted to think that it is. The Bible is about our God. Abraham returns from Egypt while he was famine there because the Lord intervened. That's it. Jacob returns from his exile because the Lord intervenes. Israel is brought out of Egypt because the Lord intervenes. We didn't even talk about really Israel last week in the Exodus, but certainly you can see the Lord intervene there. Sometimes, by the way, it's super clear, like that case, right? When the Lord brings Israel out, Israel does nothing but practically grumble and complain the entire time they're in exile, and the Lord brings them out anyway. They, they don't lift a finger, right? Egypt kicks them out because the Lord works on their behalf for this great redemption. But sometimes it's really not as clear. For instance, when Jacob is in exile and and you read that narrative, the Lord isn't really even explicitly mentioned over and over again as doing this or doing that. But then we see a testimony in Genesis 31 of Jacob's own testimony that it was the Lord that has been with him. It's the Lord that's protected him, that's made him wealthy and was sending him back to the promised land. In our passage, in David's life, it is the Lord who once again has been with David in exile. 
He has protected and provided for him. He has just worked this great deliverance through the hand of David against the Amalekites. And now he is bringing David home. He is being sent north of the promised land to Hebron so that there may be peace in the land. And indeed, he will bring peace. Remember what we talked about last week, Joshua's words from Joshua, or Caleb's words from Joshua 14, 12, where he said, It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord said. That's, that's Caleb, by the way, talking about driving the giants out from Hebron. And then he finishes in verse 15 by saying, Then the land had rest for more. David is demonstrating that Caleb-like faith, just as Jonathan would later say in 1 Samuel 14, 6. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. Or, of course, the testimony of the greater Caleb, the greater Jonathan, David. His testimony to the Lord's intervention. His battle cry when he's going to face, face Goliath. I don't know about you, I'm a big fan of action movies and war scenes and stuff like that. I think those things are pretty cool. But every action scene or battle scene you see is always made better by a tremendous speech, right? If you've seen Braveheart, you know the cry for freedom by William Wallace gets you going, right? It gets all the army going. They're ready to go after that speech. You think of uh, Aragorn to the men of Gondor before the final battle there, right? Or my favorite, uh, President Bill Pullman from Independence Day, right? We will not go quietly into the night. We will not vanish without a fight. We're going to live on. We're going to survive. Uh, today is our Independence Day, right? That's, that's, that's a wonderful speech and everybody's fired up for this. But I love this in 1 Samuel 17 because David's about to go out to face Goliath and he gives this crazy awesome battle cry except we must remember nobody was behind David here. <laughs> David's out on his own. Israel is scared to death of Goliath and listen to this battle cry that David gives. He says, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you and take your head from you. This day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beast of the earth that all of the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And then all this assembly, which by the way is Israel, who's like, Good luck, David. All this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you, give you into our hands. I love that. And you see, listen, that's everywhere. David's simply saying, the Lord's going to do this. It's a wonderful battle, battle cry, and this is all throughout the scriptures. Like, I've probably been accused of this already, uh, but if not, let me just say, first of all, I'm okay with it. Uh, but someday, I'm going to be accused of always preaching the same sermon. That's okay, honestly. Why? Because it's the same message. The Lord intervenes on behalf of his people. The Lord is the one at work. It's about him. It's about his faithfulness to David. Why is David safe right now in Ziklag in the land of the Philistines? Why has he been sent to Hebron to be anointed king by the house of Judah? Because the Lord has spoken. That's the only reason. And his word is inexorable. It's unstoppable. Not just then, but today. So lesson two, we, we need to get home, therefore we need the Lord to intervene. We need to be saved. And the Bible is the history of the salvation of the Lord. 
Abraham prospers not because of his might, but because the Lord has called him to be a blessing to the whole world in Genesis 12. Jacob survives the threat of Laban not because he's faster and stronger, but because the Lord promised to be with him. Joshua was strong and courageous because the Lord was with him. Caleb slays giants because his hope was in the Lord. And here is David. He brings this exile return motif to its clearest presentation so far. David is successful because the Lord is with him. The Lord has chosen him, called him. The Lord has promised to be with him. And so when he's driven into exile, we actually expect the Lord to intervene at this point and guess what? He does. I mean, I mean, listen, isn't that just like our God? It's so easy to, to skip quickly from this. So, so just back up a little bit. Think about how this message rang in the ears of those in Israel who experienced literal exile at the hands of the Assyrians and Babylonians. How encouraging you think this message was to those who were head, held in literal exile? In Assyria or Babylon as they were literally being ruled by another people. Cut off from their promised land where there was a direct connection between that land and where the Lord dwells. I mean, David even expresses in chapter 26, while in exile, one's ability to worship God in spirit and in truth. How comforting would that message have been for them? How important do you think it was for them to remember? Do you think it had any impact on Daniel whatsoever? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? That they knew even in exile that the Lord was with them? How important do you think it was for their mind to be informed by the reality that this is just like our God? To bless us even while we are in exile. To be with us. To bring us home. Honestly, when has Yahweh not saved his people? Really? Look at the scriptures. He's so faithful. Again, our biggest threat is not Babylon. Our biggest threat is not Egypt or Assyria. Our biggest concern should not be whether the Lord God will intervene and bring our full salvation and bring us home. It shouldn't. Our biggest concern should be losing sight of the fact that we are in Babylon. Our biggest concern should be losing sight of the fact that this is not our home as we await our Savior from heaven. Our biggest concern should be the reality that there's a constant threat against our souls to simply compromise and integrate into the world in such a way that we no longer bear the image of our Father. Our aim should be to remind each other that Jesus, not Pharaoh, or not Nebuchadnezzar, is king. Jesus will bring us home to our heavenly Hebron. We need him to intervene. That's the second lesson. We long for home. And this is the third point, the third lesson we see from this exile return motif throughout all of scripture. It's this. Because God will bring us home, because God will bring us home, we have hope. Do not discount how important hope is. I think we all know, don't we, that hope is vital. Lesson number one, we're not home. Lesson number two, we need the Lord to save us or to intervene. Lesson number three, because God will bring us home, we have hope. Abram did not belong in Egypt. 
He couldn't stay there any more than we can stay here like this. Friends, do you recognize this world system and the way this world is, is actually, uh, it actually isn't sustainable whatsoever? It's not. You want to know why this life is so hard? Because it's not supposed to be like this. Listen, it's not because you aren't doing enough. It's not because you're not working hard enough. It's not because you don't have all your ducks in a row or everything together the way it's supposed to be. It's because this place is broken and you and I were made for something greater. You were made for God himself. Jacob couldn't stay in Padan Aram. David was cut off from the heritage of the Lord living among the Philistines. He couldn't stay there either. We were created to live in a world where the glory of God fills the earth as water covers the sea. And the reality is, friends, is we're so spiritually dull to that on a regular basis. We just are. Like, we know these words, yet it is so hard for our minds even to imagine to the nth degree what that might even be like. I mean, this all feels so real, doesn't it? The physical pleasures we enjoy, they they feel so real. The food tastes so real. The relationship seems so real, like they're just going to last forever and ever, right? Don't they? Listen, don't let this be the quote that you take away from the sermon. In fact, don't post this one on Facebook and let it be the only thing you take away. But but honestly, can you really imagine there's a time quickly approaching where you will die? And yet you will. I know, super uplifting, right? But the reality is, friends, I say this because I love you, everyone in here is facing an imminent death. It may be decades from now, it may be this afternoon, but there is something that will go on forever and ever. Eternal separation from the source of all joy and all comfort, your creator, your father, or dwelling in the presence of his glory forever and ever. Hear me. That's just around the corner. For all of us, we don't belong to this world. Try as you might to fit in, to make it the very best you can, your very best life now. You don't belong here. This is Egypt. This is Assyria. This is Babylon, if you prefer. And these kingdoms will all be shaken, every last one of them. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. In our passage, David was anointed king over the house of Judah. And you know what's so funny is we often, we often lose sight of the fact that these things don't happen as quickly on the ground back in history as they do in the narrative. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean, in the narrative, it might feel like David's just there for a hot minute, right? I mean, what's it, a day? Like a couple chapters over? No, he was there for well over a year. And it's still going to be years before Israel will receive him as king. We're not talking just a span of a few days here. I mean, how much of our suffering is actually provoked by a longing for something that we don't have? Something like you feel like the Lord should give you. It's probably a bad example, but for instance, Justin and I together, we've been praying for years now that the Lord would provide for us another elder to come and join us in leadership. 
I know the Lord wants a plurality of elders here. I want one raised up from within this church. He says that in his word. He wants a plurality of elders. I know the Lord is able to raise up men to provide other elders for First Baptist Church of Grey Gables. Surely he wants it. It was so convicting to me as I was writing this this week when I thought about how long the saints of old waited for that which was promised to them. 430 years in exile is a very long time. Think about it. Abraham didn't even get to see his children being brought out. That's not uncommon. I mean, you feel like you've waited so long, but, but you haven't. In our passage, we see David receiving that which was promised him. He's anointed king over the house of Judah. And that is the initial fulfillment of the word of the Lord. See, the full fulfillment will come in chapter 5 when Israel is united under the reign of David. But we've got an initial fulfillment here of chapter 13, 15, and 16 of 1 Samuel. The Lord acted in accord with his promise. The Lord said he sought a man after his own heart. And commanded him to be prince over his people. He said that he had torn the kingdom away from Saul and given it to a neighbor of his who was better than him. He said that the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret for he is not a man that he should have regret. In other words, the Lord doesn't change his mind. Again, his word is inexorable, unstoppable, inescapable. And we see once again here his word being fulfilled. Listen, from the ground up, from the ground level up until now, David has been a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. On the ground level, the anointed one is despised and rejected. And yet from the heavenly view, all along, David is the righteous one. Chosen to bring the kingdom of God to bear in Israel. Our verse reminds us again what the whole Bible teaches us. And I know I say it over and over again, but we really have to learn it. God's word will not return void. What has God promised? See... Part of the problem is, I, I don't think we know the answer to that. I don't. What has God promised you? Let's consider it. What has God promised you? Hasn't he promised me a good marriage? No. Has he promised me a good job? Sorry. Again, no. But he's at least promised me health. <laughs> No, not exactly. What do you think the Lord has promised you? Here's what he's promised you. He's promised you that on the day of the Lord, when he returns for his people, that Jesus will save you from the wrath that is to come. He's promised you that the wrath that is to come is going to cleanse and purify the earth of all sin and all lawbreakers. Bringing about a new creation where righteousness and holiness dwell. That's what he's promised. He's promised that there's a day quickly coming when our exile will come to an end. He's promised that there's a day quickly coming when those of us who like our Savior are now despised and rejected will know the pleasure of standing as God's children. Hearing that commendation your heart longs for more than anything else and you don't even know it. Friends, hear me. You will feel a deeper joy and satisfaction on the day you hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, than your greatest moments here on earth. The reality is, we can say that we know those things, and yet we don't. Not completely. But we can know it's true. <laughs> it's like one of those things you can't quite grasp, feel, and imagine, yet you can just say, 
I know the word's true. I know that day is quickly coming. And I'm going to live my life in light of it. And friends, when you grasp that, don't you understand that it, it changes everything? Understanding that we know the Bible to be true and we know the promises of God. Listen, it changes the way we suffer. It changes the thing we hope in. It changes the way we live because it changes the one we live for. Listen, God's word is trustworthy. So the application there is simple. We should trust it. I'm going to finish really quickly just by looking at this entire puzzle piece one more time and then apply this last lesson. Of course, Jesus is the greater David, right? David is the greater Caleb. David's the greater Joshua. But we know Jesus is the far greater. He's the true and better Joshua, David, Caleb, and every other Christ figure who preceded him. Jesus is the greater David who through his exile is bringing us home to God. We've, we've seen how ubiquitous this exile return motif is in the scripture. That's intentional. This mystery of the gospel declared beforehand as we heard read from 1 Peter this morning. Declared in the law and the prophets, this mystery has become knowledge to us in Christ. See, our passage taken in its broader context reveals to us God the Father planned to send his son as the promised seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, who would defeat our enemies to bring blessing through a right relationship to God, with God, to the nations. But more specifically, 1 and 2 Samuel teach us that the anointed conqueror will be a suffering servant. See, we read Isaiah 53 and we think that just pops on the scene there. That's abnormal. But no, it doesn't. We actually even see that in Genesis. 1 and 2 Samuel teach us the anointed conqueror will be a suffering servant, despised and rejected by men. And then after his suffering, after his exile, then glory. After he's cut off, after he's crushed for our iniquity, then he'll ascend out of that grave, the ultimate exile, and he will return to Hebron bringing rest to the land and the world. Now, doesn't that sound like a stretch? But listen, was Jesus not a king without a kingdom when he came to earth? Wasn't he? Jesus came to his own and they did not receive him. We all preferred a king like Saul, tall and mighty to fight our own battles for us. All of us did. We drove him into the hands of the enemy who crucified him on the cross. That ultimate exile cut off from God in the land of the living, but the grave could not hold the author of life. God intervenes and he raised the righteous one on the morning of the third day. The king returned and he's been gathering everyone who's in distress, debt, and bitter in soul, just like Samuel in 2 Samuel 25, 1 Samuel 25. I mean, does Jesus not say in Matthew 11, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Friends, when Jesus returns, he is going to bring Hebron with him. That is, he is bringing the shalom of God. Do you know that term? The shalom, that, that peace that we all talk about from various perspectives and ways, but really we know nothing of. That peace where all of creation is restored to right relationship with God functioning as God created it to function. 
enjoying God, reflecting perfectly His glory. It's a Revelation 22 type picture. Jesus is bringing the shalom of God, the glory of God. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. That's the rest of the puzzle. That's the big picture. Revelation 22, if you don't know it, read it, please. It's homecoming. It's exactly what it is. It's the salvation we long for. The final end of our exile, the consummation of the new creation that began on the day Jesus rose from the grave. It began there, and now as he subjects all things under his feet, we wait. But friends, it's coming. So to return to our final lesson, it's certain. The Lord's return is, it, it's certain. Unbelievers, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, that day is certain. I know it's impossible for your mind to grasp what it might look like for Jesus just to rend the sky. Just for it to be split open as he enters our realm, as the anointed conqueror. But hear me, when he does, peace Peace will no longer be the message. Unbelievers, you will bend your knee and then be removed from the presence of God forever. But today, it's peace, peace. Today, he speaks from this very pulpit, peace. Receive him as Savior, receive him as King. That day could be today. Believers, for those of us who are in Christ's application pretty simple. Do not grow weary of doing good. The Lord has always brought his people home. It's the testimony of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. How much more the true and better David in light of his exile on the cross for us. In light of his return from exile on the third day and in light of the promise of God, how much more can we be certain that he will return to bring us home? So one last small note. That eternity longing that's been placed in every human heart that you've probably felt certainly, probably more the last couple of years, don't despise that ache in your heart. Don't despise wanting to go home as you might be prone to do. It's actually a gift from your father. So I've said it a hundred times, I'll say it again. This is not your home. Your home is where God is. We are made to dwell with Him. We are made to be with Him. We are made to know Him and be known by Him in ways we have yet to experience. Now in part, because we have Christ, praise be to God, but we're not there yet. So hear me. Don't medicate every struggle and hide all discontentment as our culture tempts us to do. Don't dig broken cisterns and make mud pies in the slums. Your father has decreed your homecoming and it is not as far off as you think. Friends, it'll, it'll seem so short once you get there. Shorter than the sermon even. <laughs> Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has intervened to redeem you from your exile and the King will return to bring us all home. Even now he is poured out home in our hearts by his spirit, abiding in us, uniting us to him who's in heaven and bringing heaven to us. So saints, be encouraged. Remember your home. Remember where you belong. 
Cultivate a longing for what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no minds have imagined. Keep your eyes on the horizon because the greater David is coming and he will bring rest from war to the land. We're about to sing a song. I don't know if you've heard it. It's called Amazing Grace. And, and I want to encourage you to hear it afresh. Once again, like so many of the songs we sing, we sing this song with a future-oriented perspective. We will sing through many dangers, toils, and snares. I have already come, past tense, praise God. We'll sing, "'Twas grace that brought us safe thus far." We'll sing, "'The Lord has promised good to me. His, wo hope, or His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures.'" When we've been there 10,000 years. Where's there? Home. <laughs> That's where it is. When we've been home 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. Would you stand with me as we close this morning? Gracious Father, Lord, you far better than we know how dull our spiritual senses are. <laughs> Lord, how, how weak our appetite is to be with you. And Father, I pray that you would bring conviction this morning to us. That you would remind us that we are not home. And Father, I know I've been saying that for the last, <laughs> I don't know how long. But Father, it seems that we need to be reminded every day. <laughs> this world is so broken and we seem so quick and ready to, to want to do everything and fix it like this is our ultimate home. Lord, it's not. Remind us. You are our home. Father, that our struggling and suffering is partly due to a deep and unquenchable longing to be where you are. It doesn't mean we don't live for your glory while we're here on this earth. But we've been created with a longing to dwell with you. And this place will never fulfill that. Lord, to have your presence, your glory, the knowledge of you fill the earth even as the waters cover the sea. Father, would you help us even cultivate a greater longing? I'm convinced, Lord, that if, that if we had a true longing to be with you, that you would do wonderful things as you're already doing in this church. I believe that's, that's part of where it begins with a love for you and, and a desire to be with you. Father, a strong, unquenchable desire to be with you. Lord, even if it increases our ache, Father, we long to be home. And so we pray together, come Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.